In the series here, Love Where You Live, we're taking a look along with many other churches here in the greater Austin area in spring and summer at how we can do that. And if you're new here, you may not have heard what many of our community groups are doing. They are having one of their own members find a neighbor in need and rally the groups, the group groups resources to meet the need. Uh, so great, you can be a part of that. Uh, there are, are approximately 36 groups. Approximately, that was kind of a joke, approximately 36, there you go, all right, and around 70% of folks here at Mosaic on a Sunday are involved with one, so thanks to you, Pastor Brett, many other people for making that happen. Uh, Many of you turned in a card last week, you got going on that journey, so thanks with that. Uh, So during June, we are looking at how we can love where we live. Uh, Last week, we looked at how we can love through doing work through doing our jobs well, and this week we are looking at loving justice, loving justice all month, all from the book of Proverbs. So here we go, let's get into our time in God's Word. Uh, The scripture reading is going to be on the screen here to your left and to your right. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver, yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you have it already with you. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Whoever is kind of the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. It's God's word. Now, one of the most amazing things about the book of Proverbs is to go through and to sort of group all the verses along the various lines and the various themes that are in there. And if if you're familiar with the book, you you go through it and you read uh, about all the things it says on topics like relationships, uh, about your family, about your work, right, Uh, about government. and, uh, And those things all seem really practical, right? All really tangible, all immediately applicable, to your everyday life. And then, and you read verses on those things, and you're encouraged, you're inspired, and you think, man, this stuff can really help my life. But then you you come in Proverbs, maybe right after that verse about your job or your spouse, to something like Proverbs 29.7, where it says, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. And then you think that, and and you think, man, how is this practical, right? I mean, how is caring about justice for the poor helpful or practical? You think, I mean, I thought Proverbs was supposed to be about wisdom to help my life. Oh, my goal today, if that's you, is to show you how, in the same way that doing work and loving your spouse is wise, that loving justice is wise. That loving justice isn't just the right thing, it's the wise thing. 
So let's see what the wisdom literature of the Bible has to say about loving justice through four really big Bible concepts I hope to unpack for you today. And here they are. Number one, shalom. Number two, imago Dei. Number three, the righteous. And four, the least of these. If you're saying, man, I have already checked out Hebrew words, Latin words. Is this like a foreign language seminar? No, no. This is a rhetorical device designed to get and hopefully keep your attention. And by the way, if there's one thing I can just about promise today, there's no one that's going to be bored. You can check with me at the end. All right. Number one, shalom. Here we go. Let's go back to chapter three of Proverbs where it's beginning to unpack the whole idea of wisdom, right? And, and it says that the, the, the very idea of wisdom, uh, what it means to live a great life in every situation, that's what's being explored in Proverbs three. And Proverbs three says that wisdom, God's way of doing life, God's way of living life, wisdom looks like this. It says all her ways are what? Peace. Now, yeah, peace. So it's kind of hard to get across in English what's meant by this Hebrew word here. Uh, But this is saying that all wise ways are ways of shalom. That's the Hebrew word there. Wisdom is to walk in shalom. What's that? All right. Now, when you and I hear the word peace, right, or we we think, or at least, uh, at least I think, that peace is like that classic line from the, the classic Christian movie, What About Bob, with Bill Murray. And, and I think peace is like this. I think peace is taking a vacation from my problems, right? Maybe you heard that line. And doesn't that sound nice? I mean, I'd like to take a vacation from my problems. I know you would like to take a vacation from your problems. We think that peace is like taking a vacation from our problems. But unfortunately, even those great theologians who wrote the screenplay have fallen short of the full biblical picture of what shalom is. So what is it? Theologian Alvin Plantinga puts it like this. He says, The webbing together of God, humans, in all creation, in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and satisfies the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. What a great way of putting it, right? I mean, that's a great bumper sticker there. Shalom is the way things ought to be. All wise paths, Proverbs is saying, all wise lives are aimed at making the world the way it ought to be. And Dr. Tim Keller, in his excellent book on the topic called Generous Justice, a good read for us all, says shalom looks like this. He said, imagine that you've got a tapestry that you wanted to make, that you wanted to weave, and in front of you were two things. First, you had a picture of what the tapestry ought to look like, and second, in front of you, you'd have a table with thousands of individual threads. Now he asked, how would you go about making that tapestry into how it ought to look? 
He said you have to take those threads, right, of all different colors, all different size, and weave them together in and out, over and under, again and again. And when you did that, not only would the tapestry be beautiful, but then it could be strong, right? It could bear the weight of something put on top of it. There are no more threads added after they're woven, but the weaving together creates strength in a way individual threads never could. Because a tapestry isn't beautiful or strong, right? As long as the threads remain individuals and only perhaps live for themselves, right? Those threads have to be interwoven. A lack of shalom then, to get his point, is where the fabric of the world isn't woven together in the way it ought to be. It's where the world is broken or ripped or torn, where there's a lack of the way things ought to be. So, what does shalom have to do with wisdom? Oh, everything, right? Everything. Think about it. Because if a person steals, when you steal, not you, but another person, right? When, when you steal, rhetorical device, again, when you, when you steal, what are you doing? It's something unwise, right? Because you're pulling out fabric. You're pulling out threads. You're destroying the very fabric that holds you. When you're selfish, uh, not you again, but another person, selfish with your money, right? If a person's greedy, which the Bible calls idolatry, by the way, what are you doing? Oh, you're pulling out your threads, right? You're not, you're weakening the same fabric that holds you. So can you see doing the work of justice, of shalom, isn't just moral, not just right or wrong, it's also wise. Also wise. It's smart, Proverbs is saying, not that you... You're doing it for your own interest, but it is actually in your own best interest if you've never seen it like that before. And therefore, a failure to do justice or a failure to have a burning heart and care, that's what the word is, yada, it's the Hebrew, to care for, intimate caring for, justice for the poor, is like looking at a hole in the bottom of a boat that you're in watching the water come in, feeling your boat sinking and saying, well, it's not my problem. I didn't make the hole, right? At that point, right, fixing the hole in the boat. Is it moral, right? Is it right or wrong? Maybe, maybe not. But it's just wise because it doesn't matter who made the hole. If the, ho- the boat goes down, you go down, right? You're in the boat too, So making the boat the way it ought to be, making the tapestry the way it ought to be, making the world the way it ought to be, that's what a wise life, Proverbs 3 says, is aimed at. All right. Now, pause. Pause. Now, some of you may be liking that. I heard three or four good Morgans there. Thank you for that. You may hear bad Morgan in a minute, but that's all right. Some of you like this. That's fine, because some of this sounds like a lot of what our culture likes today, and that's good. And because of that, we should look as people of faith, as Christians, to, to co-labor, right, to work with people where we can agree. But one thing you may not have noticed, or maybe you have, is a massive, massive assumption I snuck in there, which is this. I've said there is a way things ought to be. way things ought to be. Now, where in the world does that come from? If you're here and you're saying, yes, justice is good, I like that, well, why, right? I mean, because much of our secular culture would say, there's no God, but justice is good. In other words, the world is a cosmic accident. 
But there's a way things ought to be. Well, why? If nature is all there is, and the law of nature is that the strong eat the weak, why shouldn't strong people devour weak people, right? What's wrong with taking advantage of the vulnerable? What's wrong with taking advantage of a a woman, for example, who's intoxicated, hasn't given her consent? What's wrong with that? And we'd all say that's wrong, but why, right? I mean, why shouldn't strong nations colonize impoverished poor ones, right? Weak ones. If you say that nature's all there is, and we're just a part of nature, human beings are, but then you say human beings shouldn't act in a certain way, what you're saying is nature is crooked. Nature's crooked. Nature's wrong. But if nature's all there is, how can nature be wrong? There's no right or wrong. There's only power. There's only power. And years ago, an atheist by the name of Frederick Nietzsche, he looked at those who tried to call for social justice reforms apart from God, and he called their bluff. He said, basically, you're all a bunch of fakes. You're all a bunch of posers. Why would you call for things to be any different if nature is all there is? Again, an atheist here. He said, the only reason you'd ever call for change if there's no God is if you wanted power, is if you wanted to be in charge. You want to be in charge. Make the world in your image. Maybe you're angry at the world, angry at the other side, but you've got no right to be. He said, you're a joke. And Nietzsche himself, who loathed Christianity, also loathed social justice calls apart from God. He said, you're making it all up. If you say there's a way things ought to be, if there is no God. And therefore, non-Christian or Christian, that should give you a lot to think about. And if you are a Christian and you say, well, yes, there is a way things ought to be, I would say yes to that. If you say, yes, we ought to care, moral imperative, for justice for the poor. I hope that you're asking that, well, why? Why do I think that? Why, how can the Bible say that? Why do I believe that? Where in the world, and the Bible, does that idea even come from, let's look, number two, the Imago Dei. Look at Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. It says, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights, rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights, the poor and needy. It takes action, right? Again, you can see in this text, there's a moral imperative. There's an ought to, right? There's a way things ought to be. You ought to care for who? The poor and needy. Now, why does Proverbs say this? Again, hear this. You heard last week, Proverbs is built on the foundation of Genesis, like the second story of a house on top of the first. And Genesis in it, Genesis has this amazing theological concept called the Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God, which you could probably see. And in Genesis 1, we see that God made people, right? Human beings, male and female, it says, in his image. That is to say, all human life carries the stamp of the divine, right? And therefore, all human life is worthy of protection and rights. And over the centuries in our nation, thankfully, uh, our idea of human rights and calls for justice for human beings have been based on the concept of the Imago Dei. And no one put it better than Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and he put it like this. It's a great quote. He says, you see... The founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him 
uniqueness. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white. Oh, he called me a treble white right there. And Dr. King called me that. I love that. Man, he's calling some. Look, to a base black, he's calling you some of that. I love that. Treble white. Not just pasty anymore. I'm treble. Thank you. Is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. He concludes like this. This is why we must fight segregation with all of our non-violent might. Oh, he wrote that in his day, and King took that. A right, great quote. And, and he took the Imago Day, right? He contended for its existence, and then he applied it to unjust laws in our nation. He said, segregation was wrong, and we should change the law regardless of how people feel. See, laws aren't about changing people's hearts. It's about defending the rights, right? Standing up for what's right. Regardless of how people feel, regardless if hearts ever change, right? Forget what the larger society thinks. It's not about changing people's hearts. It's about doing what's right. So he took the Imago Dei, applied it to that situation. Now, let me ask you, what happens to a society when, as a whole, it loses the idea of the Imago Dei? What happens when you have a a culture, a society in which the cultural elite You know, professors, ethicists, writers say, well, we don't believe in God anymore. Therefore, we don't believe human beings were made in the image of God. We just evolved. We're complex organisms, and that's it. Now, how do you ground human rights in the worth of something that shouldn't even exist? What makes a human being worthy of rights and protection if you don't have the image of God, the stamp of the divine anymore? And here's what they're all saying. And the the basic idea is this. A cultural elite says, well, since we don't believe in the image of God, we have to ground human rights in something called capacities. Capacities. And here's what this means. A human being only deserves rights and protections when they have the capacity to reason, a capacity for consciousness, a capacity to make moral choices, a capacity to know right from wrong, capacity for what some professors call preferences. But if someone can reason, right, if they can make choices, can have preferences, then the moral agents, and they're capable or worthy of protection. They have rights. Oh, but there's a huge problem with this approach and, and the whole secular approach to rights, and I hope that you've seen it. Peter Singer is a professor at uh, Princeton University. He's a prominent atheist, prominent uh, philosopher. He points out how we've already applied this idea of capacities in our nation. And here's how he argues. He says, yes, that's right. Human rights ought to be grounded in capacities because there's no God. And that's why he says in particular, he believes the Supreme Court was right when it said that abortion was okay, right? Now, what was the reason, right? What was the reason? Not Peter Singer, not you, not me. The Supreme Court said abortion was okay. Hmm? Why is it so quiet in here? It's quiet, huh? They said it was okay, right? Because life in the womb doesn't have capacities. That's their argument. They can't make choices. They can't reason. They can't tell right from wrong. Can't live apart from the mom. They don't have capacities. Therefore, they don't have rights. That's what they said. That's what Peter Singer says. But that's a slippery slope. Because if that's true, let's just keep something in mind. My 10-year-old can barely survive outside his mother's womb. 
certainly a one-year-old can't, a six-month-old can't, a six-week-old can't, six-day-old. They can't reason. They can't make moral choices. And Singer goes on to say, that's right, and neither can the senile, the elderly, neither can the mentally handicapped. So why shouldn't we be allowed to end their lives too? Now, do you realize why so many people are furious at Peter Singer? Man, look him up. People are mad at him. Do you know why they're furious, though? Here's why. Because he's right. He's right. Because if you don't believe in the image of God, what are you going to ground human rights in? You've got to ground it in capacities. If you can't protect the unborn, if you can't protect, then you can't protect the newly born, then you can't protect the senile, you can't protect the mentally handicapped. It's logical. But if you go back to the beginning of the Christian church, here's what you saw. Christianity was birthed into a Greco-Roman world also grounded, that also grounded human rights on the idea of capacities. Aristotle said that some races were too emotional to deserve rights. Aristotle said some people couldn't reason, therefore they deserved to be slaves. Greco-Roman world was built on that. So you had in their world lots of slavery, had ridiculous poverty, lots of abortion, lots of infanticide, perfectly legal, especially girl babies, female babies, were left out to die, die of exposure. They took the elderly, the sick, and the poor, and they let them all die. Perfectly legal, done all the time. But then Christians came along, and they believe in the Imago Dei. And because they believed in the image of God, from the beginning, the Christian church was against abortion. And one of the first things that changed, read it, Rodney Stark's Rise of Christianity, that changed in Greeks who became Christians, that they stopped grounding life anymore in capacities, started grounding all life in the Imago Dei. Because they said, if human life is good, then any age or stage is good as well. But they were also against infanticide. They weren't just one-issue people. They cared for the poor. They cared for mothers, basically single moms in their day, widows who were left struggling to care for, the, for their children in a society that didn't value women. And the Christians said, we're not going to make you remarry. If you don't want to remarry, we will support you. We'll take care of you. They were champions of women, of the poor, of orphans. And they put the rest of the culture to shame because of their belief in the sanctity of life. So eventually, the whole Western world adopted the Imago Dei. Because, hear this, when you believe in the image of God, the circle of protected life expands. But if you don't believe in that, if you only ground it in capacities or some other approach, the circle will eventually contract. That's what our nation did with its eugenics laws. Very shameful period. The circle just gets smaller and smaller. Fewer and fewer people get protected. And one day, it might just shrink and exclude you. You see how incredible, crucial, important the teaching of the image of God is. You said, Morgan, man, two weeks ago, uh, you said Jesus didn't take a stand on a hot-button political issue. So why are you talking about this now? Here's why. Because it's not a political issue. It's a justice issue. I mean, look at Proverbs 31. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of who? What's the word? All who are destitute. And by the way, when I looked this up, I got in my lexicon, got my study tools this week in the Hebrew, my jaw dropped. That fell out of my chair. Here's what it literally says. Open thy mouth for the dumb, that's those who can't speak, in the cause of all such are as, what? Appointed to destruction. And if we believe in the Imago Dei, we'll do this. 
And by the way, to say that unborn lives matter does not take away anything from the value of the life of the mother. If I were to say to you today, hey, this is just Morgan saying to you, your buddy Morgan saying to you today, hey, look, listen, black lives matter. I hope you would say amen to that. I hope you would say that's right to that. Black lives are worthy of protection under the law because of the Imago Dei. I can say black lives matter and let it stand. And I can say unborn lives matter and I can let it stand. Both for the same reason, because of the Imago Dei, the image of God. So what will we look like as a church if we really believe this? If we took the image of God seriously? Well, first of all, regardless of what the law of the land says, we would know that abortion, right, is not God's heart for people, right? Number one. Second, the women who have had abortions, if that's you when you're here, and the men who have helped them, you would come here and you'd find mercy and you'd find love and you'd find forgiveness because the book of James says, listen, you don't disdain, you don't curse, right? Yes, you preach against sin, but listen, you offer grace and mercy. And I don't know if that's you. I don't know why you've had one if that's you. And those of you who are here who have not had one, you are no better than the woman who has one because the ground at the foot of the cross is absolutely level. And we would also talk through why that person felt. They had to make that decision, their circumstances, what God, we would embrace them and their story. You know what? My opinion is we do that by and large here. And third, we wouldn't be single issue people. We would be for the rights of all the poor, right? All the weak, all the marginal. If there's a single mom in your community group, hmm? what about asking her, how can we help you with your situation, right? And if we did that, among other things, we would be a very unusual community, wouldn't we? And if we did that, what would people call us? What would the city call us if we did that? Oh, here it is. Number three, they'd call us the righteous. The righteous. Look at this. I love this. Proverbs 3, uh, uh, it's uh, eleven ten. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Oh, look at this. According to Proverbs, there's a, there's a kind of a people, right? Even a church who, when they prosper, right? When they get to the top, the whole city is glad for them. Well, who is that? What kind of people? Well, English, again, limits us a bit. But the word here is righteous. This is the Hebrew word, the sadikim. Sadikim. It means those who, hear this, are willing to disadvantage themselves, to advantage the community, while the wicked are those who put their own financial and social needs and desires ahead of the community. Let me ask you, are you, am I, the kind of person, family, that the people around you in your neighborhood, in your office say, man, I may not believe in your God, Don't, your faith is crazy, whole men rising from a dead thing, Holy Spirit inside you thing is nuts. But I'm so glad you're here because you press so much value into our neighborhood Community, office, right? I mean, is there anybody talking about us as a church like that? What would it take? What would it take for us to become the kind of church, right? That when we showed up, when someone mentioned our name, when they heard Mosaic was coming, they rejoiced. Thank God Mosaic is here, they would say. What would it take for the city to rejoice that we're here? Let me tell you what it doesn't take. It doesn't take us just getting bigger for getting bigger, getting bigger sake, Right? Doesn't take that. I know. I hope we do grow. The kingdom's like a seed; it ought to grow, right? Doesn't take us building a bigger building. We might, maybe not. Doesn't take us having great sermons. You're probably saying, "Well, those are in short supply anyway, especially today's." Right? 
What would it take? What would it take? Proverbs 3, let's go back to it. It says this, don't withhold good from those who? To whom it is what? Do when it's in your power to act. Now, again, when I looked this up, I about fell over again, and here's why. Because if you read about 10 different translations of this, you, they got 10 different ways of trying to translate that real tricky fa- phrase there. It says, to whom it is due. This is a very familiar Bible word. It's the Bible word, bail. Oh, bail, as in the bales of the Old Testament. It's a word that means master or Lord. This is saying, don't withhold good from your bail. From your master, from your Lord. And who is your bail? Who's your master? Who has authority over you? Look at the next verse. It says what? Your neighbor. Your neighbor. Your neighbor. Oh, the person who lives next to you. Oh, this is trying to get up in your face here. This is aggressive. This is saying, and I, you check it out. Read your own commentary. The person who lives next to you has a right to your stuff. Just like you do. And all the capitalists in here just checked out. (laughs) Saying, man, Morgan, that's pretty un-American, right? Starting to feel the burn. (laughs) Sound like Bernie Sanders. Morgan, haven't you ever heard of private property? Of course there's private property, right? Ten commandments. Thou shalt not what? Steal. Yeah. This has got nothing to do, though, with the other person. It has everything to do with you and me, with our, it says, power, ability to make things right for those who can't make it right for themselves. These people, the Saudi king, disadvantage themselves for someone in need. Is your community group doing that? Is mine. Hmm? Are people glad our community groups exist? Does the neighborhood rejoice when another Mosaic group moves in? The city rejoices when the righteous come. Sadikim. And we do that by not withholding good when we have it to give. Now you may be saying, Morgan, at minimum, I'm deeply offended. Most, I'm feeling terrible about myself. Why did I come today? Holy smokes, I thought the Bible was supposed to make me feel good, right? Let me tell you, you know what feels good? Shalom. Shalom the world as it ought to be. That feels good. And that's why, in part, this church exists. So stop with the guilty feelings. They're not going to help you be a person who loves justice anyway. So what will, number four, by seeing the least of these? Proverbs says this, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Now, in case you thought this morning, man, this is all the Old Testament stuff, my advice to you is don't read the New Testament because Jesus takes all of this. He takes Genesis, Proverbs, prophets, and he turns it all into the, the, the parable that uh, Protestant American evangelicals love to avoid at all costs, the sheep and the goats, the sheep and the goats, where Jesus says on God's judgment day, Those who will be cast aside, those who get eternal, he said his words, eternal judgment, are those who did not clothe Jesus, did not feed him, did not provide him drink when he was thirsty, didn't visit him in prison. He says, I'll cast away those who didn't love me. And Jesus said, people will respond, well, Lord, didn't, when did we not take care of you? When did we not clothe you? And he said, when you didn't do it for the least of these. 
Again, not showing you how to get a relationship with Christ. This is saying, along with many other places in the New Testament, that one of the ways you show you actually do have a relationship with Jesus is that you care about the poor. Because only the Bible shows you how far and how deeply God identifies with the poor. And here's how. God doesn't just identify with the poor. The Bible says God actually became poor. It doesn't just favor them. He became poor. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he had no home, no possessions, was born to an unwed teenage mother who understood that he was the Imago Dei, the image of God. But he wasn't just poor. He was oppressed, right? A citizen of an oppressed people who were conquered by the superpower nation of their day. A victim of a rigged legal system that resulted in the death penalty. And on the cross, he became Matthew 25 lived out. He was naked. He was thirsty. He became a prisoner. He became abandoned by his followers. Jesus became the very least of these. What was he doing? Paying in his own body for all the tears in the fabric, paying for all the holes we've made in the world, paying for the lack of shalom in the world. Do you see him doing that for you? Do you know that though you were poor, destitute, on your way to destruction, he stood up for you, opened his mouth for you, went into the courtroom of God's justice, and got your guilty verdict. Oh, that's beautiful. That's glorious. That moves me because I know now when I see the poor, right? I know I'm looking in a spiritual mirror. That's my condition. I would still be there if someone hadn't exercised his power and ability on my behalf, though I did not deserve it, had done nothing for it, actually did the opposite of deserving it. See, mercy has nothing to do with deserving it. How can we be people who love where we live? Through loving justice, through making the world the way it ought to be. Before we close, there's a few ways you can specifically do that here in this church. And there are many, many more ways outside this church that I know many of you are involved with. And you are involved with these personally and amazing. Many of you serve many places without anyone seeing you. You fight to make the world the way it ought to be. Thank you for that. And by the way, uh, you know, so many of you, you don't know these stories. I get to see them as a pastor. I'm so lucky to be able to see these. Hard to share from the front all the time, but people are doing this. But here, here, three ways in this church you can make the world better. Number one, get involved with our work at Live Oak Elementary. Be a mentor there. Get involved with that backpack food program, feeds kids over the weekend. Let me tell you, when we go there, the school rejoices. They do. Teachers rejoice, counselors rejoice, the district rejoices. I will forever consider helping the kid I mentor there read above grade level. One of the greatest accomplishments of my life. See, Morgan, I've heard that story like four times. Oh, well, you go get one yourself, right? (laughs) Maybe I'll tell yours. Very small. God's called us to do that. Number two, get involved with Kai Street. It's our ministry to the homeless community here in Austin. And let me tell you, when many of our homeless friends, when they see our trucks coming, they rejoice. They rejoice. We do truck runs the first and third Thursdays of the month. Got one coming up this week. We have a community group on the last Thursday of the month for them. We bring love, food, hugs, smiles, prayers, supplies. And number three, get the heck out of America. 
I mean, go on a mission trip. <laughs> go on a mission trip. We go, among many other places, to San Luis Potosi, Mexico, three times a year, to the church and the orphanage that we partner with there together. When we go there, the people rejoice. They do. We don't just go to feel better about ourselves. We've gone there. Brett and his teams have gone there so many times over the years. We take our money down there, buy stuff there, invest in that economy there. And many of you financially support kids there every single month. Thank you. Thank you. And you can get going on all those through our website. And there are many, many more ways. I know that many of you do justice. Some of you go on trips to other nations. Some of you do things in the academic world. Thank you. Maybe you live in a certain neighborhood on purpose, right? You you tend to the needs in that neighborhood on purpose. Thank you. Some of you do stuff in your business or your arts. And you, you aim your business not just at making profits, but at creating shalom. Thank you. Some of you teach your children about this at home. Thank you. That's amazing. I wasn't taught this growing up. Man, I'm way late to this game. I needed help with this. Some of you have been that help. So thank you. The righteous care about justice. Let's be people who do that for the least of these, right? Because our servant king, Jesus.